0: Working with the right to science is exciting because it's applicable to so many important areas of contemporary life, yet it has been so thoroughly neglected. So it's just really rare that people can contribute to areas of of ethics or human rights that have been so underdeveloped. And this means that anyone that's listening right now has the potential to significantly impact and shape the promotion and the understanding of this right in ways that just wouldn't be possible uh, in more established areas of human rights law or or in practical ethics.
1: And I think that the very fact that these rights were put into the same article in in both of these major human rights instruments that makes it possible for us to work an ethical and dignity related human centered perspective into how we look at science. It allows us to perceive the human side of things, if you will, what's at stake for the humans that are involved.
2: Hello, I'm Amy Smith, and you're listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the Library and Archives dedicated to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. Joining me for this episode are Professor Hella Porstam, professor of history and cultural rights at the center for interdisciplinary studies of law at the university of copenhagen professor porstam holds a unesco chair in cultural rights and also dr sebastian porstamman who is doing his second doctorate in human rights law focusing on the right to science at the university of oxford through their work we get to explore the right to science how it came about what it means, how it can be put into practice, and even why it has been called the sleeping beauty. So welcome both of you to the next page. I'm so delighted you could join us here today to talk about the recently published book that you edited on the right to science. The book is so interesting for the library and archives in that it has much to do with the dissemination of knowledge, with open access, with international law, international cooperation, in this juncture between science and society in which human rights and the right to science can be applied as a very useful tool. So we're very curious to learn more. But first, perhaps you could introduce yourselves and let us know how your academic backgrounds brought you to this topic and why it is so important for us to have a book on the right to science now. Thank you very much. It's such a great pleasure to be here, and it's wonderful to have this
1: opportunity to talk about our book. Uh, Being a professor of history and cultural rights at the University of Copenhagen means for me in practice that I teach American history at the history department, and then I teach human rights at the law school. And this is also where I hold a UNESCO chair in cultural rights. I was originally educated in American studies, uh, and back then I became interested in the role of law in the U.S., the use of rights talk, as some would call it, to give as a common discourse as a, and the courts as a venue to settle conflicts in a multicultural society where there's no other agreement. There are so many different cultures in the U.S., and they come with totally different backgrounds, and they do not agree on a whole lot. So down through American history, we've seen uh, the courts become that venue where conflicts are settled, big and small. We see it right now, for example, with all the all the cases that are directed at former President Trump. So from there, uh, I moved into human rights talk, and again, I think of human rights talk as a venue to meet in a possibly this creates one of the few ethical. Languages that we have where we can meet in a global world to settle all kinds of conflicts. I'm especially interested in cultural rights, and normally we agree that cultural rights are their four core cultural rights. And those are the right to education, the right to participate in cultural life, the right to benefit from scientific progress and its um, products, and then something called author's rights. In both of the major instruments that we deal with, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the right to science is mentioned side by side with the right to participate in culture. And not everybody has been happy with this categorization. A number of scientists would say, for example, would it make science relativistic? like what is happening with culture and in the humanities, they don't see science as a part of culture. But as the drafters of both the Universal Declaration and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights saw it, the rights to culture and science and authors' rights uh, ideally interact to make sure that we have a flow of human creativity and understanding. And I think that the very fact that these rights were put into the same article in in both of these major human rights instruments, that makes it possible for us to work an ethical and dignity-related human-centered perspective into how we look at science. It allows us to perceive the human side of things, if you will. What's at stake for the humans that are involved? And at a time where many have a more or less sinking feeling of living in a post-truth world, in which uh, scientific facts uh, commonly agreed upon by scientists are routinely reduced to fake news or to alternative facts, I think that the right to science may provide a useful tool. That's really why I'm doing this. And the wording of especially Article 15 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is so very rich that it allows us to put on the agenda and out there for discussion everything from scientific freedom to international cooperation and the importance of the public dissemination of
2: science. Fascinating. And so you, Sebastian.
0: Uh, so first, let me say thank you so much, Amy, for having us. I'm excited to, um, to share our work on the right to science. So my background is originally in philosophy, experimental psychology and neuroscience, uh, in which I was educated at the University of Cambridge. And I also did my first doctorate in applied ethics and neuroscience there. So when I began my first postdoc at Harvard Medical School's Center for Bioethics, interest in the right to science field was just starting to accelerate. There were rumors at the time that a a general comment, which is an authoritative interpretation by the UN expert body overseeing the implementation of the relevant human rights treaty, was in the works on the right to science. Uh, In bioethics, moreover, the right to health has a relatively prominent role It's the subject of thousands of research articles and has been used in litigation aimed at furthering bioethical goals, such as access to essential medicines. So the two of us here, together with my boss at the time, Christine Mitchell, thought that the right to science was topical but had been neglected and envisioned that it might have at least as much potential as the right to health does. So we set up a a reading group to learn more about this right and began various efforts, including the one that would eventually turn into our edited volume that we're discussing today. And the timing of the book was in part chosen to coincide with the publication of the general comment that I mentioned, so that the chapters included would be among the first contributions to react to that really important document.
2: So... Everybody's heard about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but the right to science, Article 27, you've talked about it, but it's not one of the most well-known, as you've said. I thought I should read it out, Article 27, "...everyone has the right freely to participate in the cultural life of the community, to enjoy the arts and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits." Sebastian, perhaps let's start with a historical point of view. Tell us a little bit more about the background on how this article came into being.
0: So the the right actually has quite an interesting history, Uh, surprising at least to me. The first known reference to the ideas that underlie this right stems from FDR, from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, For Freedom speech. Towards the end of that speech, he points to six basic things, I quote, that make up the foundations of a strong and healthy democracy. Among these, uh, one of these six is, I quote again, the enjoyments of the fruits of scientific progress in a wider and constantly rising standard of living. And so we know from scholarship based on the drafting history, the preparatory works, that the credit for including the right to science provision in the Universal Declaration goes to John Peters Humphrey, who was the Canadian international law professor who served as a director or the director of the UN Secretariat's Division of Human Rights at the time? Now he, John Humphrey, was tasked with preparing a first draft of the document that would eventually become the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And as he said about this task in 1947, he looked around and drew inspiration from a range of sources, one of which was the first draft of the American Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man, which would eventually become the first international declaration of human rights, uh, beating the Universal Declaration by half a year or so. And we know from Humphrey's memoirs uh, that he got his inspiration for including the right to science in the Universal Declaration from this draft of the American Declaration. And Article 13 of, of that draft, I have it in front of me here, says, I quote, every person has the right to share in the benefits accruing from the discoveries and inventions of science under conditions which permit a fair return to the industry and skill of those responsible for the discovery or invention. Uh, now, unfortunately, we don't know where the inspiration came from to include it in the American declaration, but we know that the right to science and the universal declaration came from there.
2: So, That was then, and today our lives in the West are so full of technology. We seem to have a pervading belief in our capacity to advance with science that somehow science will solve all our problems. So reading Mikhail Mancisidor's chapter on the dawning of the right to science, I found it really interesting to discover the story of how the S for science came to be included in the organisation we now know as UNESCO. It sounded like it was quite a determined fight on the part of a group of scientists. After all, this was in 1945. It was immediately post-World War II with the Nazi war crimes and the horrors of the atomic bombs um, still very vivid in people's minds. So would you tell us a little bit more about this and how the fear of what scientists will do to us next, as the chair of the conference, uh, Ellen Wilkinson, said, how that influenced how science was included in the name and in the focus of the organisation? And how did this shape ethical discourse?
1: Yes. Um, the uh, UNESCO stands for Education, Science, and Culture. That's part of the name UNESCO, and that's kind of the, resort, the remit of uh, UNESCO. And that link between science and culture has actually been there from the very beginning. It's explicit, in, and I talked a little bit about it before, it's explicit in both Article 27 of the Universal Declaration and also Article 15 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, that more or less repeats what Article 27 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights said. The idea in UNESCO originally was to have the declaration as a declaration is not a legally binding instrument. So the idea originally was to have one convention which would make all of those rights mentioned in the Universal Declaration legally binding, to have such an instrument drawn up. But in the end, they couldn't agree um, within the UN, and it took until 1966, so quite a few years, to actually have uh, documents drawn up that would make those rights legally binding. And um, unfortunately, in many ways, they decided within UNESCO they couldn't agree. For all kinds of reasons, this was part of the, the Cold War, decolonization and other geopolitical occurrences. Um, So they ended up deciding that we should have two different covenants. One of them is called the Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, and the the other one is called the Covenant for Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And the one we're talking about here is the one on, on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So I say it was a bit unfortunate, because what happened was that we have forever since been talking about what the core of human rights is. Is it civil and political rights, or is it economic, social, and cultural rights. And the official UN opinion is that all of these are interrelated and interdependent and equally important. But the link between uh, culture and science was already present in the 1945 UNESCO Constitution, which said that the mission of the, of the new um, organization would be, and I quote, to contribute to peace and security by promoting collaboration among the nations, through education, science, and culture. So there we have all three of them mentioned. And throughout the UNESCO Constitution, the notion of culture should be understood to refer very broadly to science as well as the arts. So science was seen as part of the cultural life. But it wasn't a foregone conclusion that science would be included in the UNESCO remit, as you mentioned And when the recently founded uh, United Nations convened a conference in London in November 1945 to establish a United Nations educational and cultural organization, the idea behind that was to further education and intercultural dialogue as the best possible way to avoid war and to promote peace after the Second World War. And interestingly enough, science did not figure in this idea. So, if it hadn't been for famous scientists such as the British biologist and philosopher Julian Huxley and biochemist Joseph Needham, who was also British, who would both go on to become, um, Huxley became the first general director of UNESCO, and um, Needham became the first head of unit for the natural sciences in December 1946. If it hadn't been for their efforts, then the the S in UNESCO would never have become a part of the organization's title and goals, and we would have known it today as UNECO. What had finally then secured the support for including the S for science was the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as you mentioned. And the use of the atomic bomb raised the issue of what would later become known as dual-use research and technology That is um, research that provides knowledge and technologies that can be applied for something good, but can also be misapplied so that they pose a significant threat to individuals uh, or to society. So the bomb made the need for ethics and scientific research very, very obvious. And this is what is reflected in that opening speech by the chair of the London Conference, British Minister of Education Ellen Wilkinson who expressed the hope the scientists would let themselves be linked closely with the humanities, as she said.
2: We're now in 2023 and, and leading up to the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But three quarters of a century ago, in 1948, what was really intended by the right to share in scientific advancement and its benefits?
0: So, it's always difficult to say um, precisely what the drafters of a a treaty intended, but in this case, we actually do have quite a few leads uh, from the preparatory works. So, we know, for example, that one of the original intentions was to include a right to access uh, scientific knowledge and discoveries, uh, since these were seen as crucial both for material well-being, but also for the full development and expression of the human personality. And this, by the way, is is one of the reasons that the right to science is grouped together with the arts and culture and education. So all of these aspects were seen as contributing to the ability of individuals to conceive of and to work towards becoming the kind of persons they wanted to be. And we know this right to access um, was meant, so both right to access knowledge, but also inventions, discoveries. It was meant to be covered by the phrase and its benefits uh, which was tacked on sort of later in the drafting. Now, the first part of the right to science part is um, is to share in scientific advancement. And, and this, by contrast, we know was meant to refer to a right to participate uh, actively in science. So do science, learn science, contribute to science, be part of science, as opposed to passively benefiting from the progress of science. Okay. And we also know the word freely was added in halfway through the drafting. Um, and from the associated discussions, we know that the drafters conceived of scientific freedom as, as being instrumentally necessary. So so they thought without scientific freedom, there would be less scientific progress and so fewer benefits to share around.
2: Very true. Um, yeah, right? Yeah. And
0: And this freedom was, however, primarily intended for science or scientific research itself. So they made an interesting distinction, an important distinction there between science, scientific research on the one hand, and then the results or applications that come out of it. So, you know, technology, but also the uses to which you put scientific knowledge. And they thought science itself has got to be free. Scientific research itself needs to be free in order to produce these benefits. But the way that the results of it, the applications of it, are used that can be restricted. So, there you don't have, or in their minds at least, scientific freedom didn't stretch out that far.
2: And has there been an, an evolution in the way we understand it now? Well, um, in some ways, there has. We're still,
1: you know, it, it, some some scholars have called the right to science a sleeping beauty because it's kind of lain dormant for a long time. It's only more recently, within the past, what, 10, 15 years, that people have been interested in, have kind of rediscovered that right again. And that has to do, I think, with the fact that so many of the problems we have, so so much of what goes on in our lives today has scientific and technological elements. So it's become more topical. And also after the COVID crisis, uh, it was kind of clear to everyone that we need scientists on board to help us, but that general public also needs to be a part of this, needs to get access to this, needs to benefit from this. And one of the things that, that's so interesting about Article 15 in the, the, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is that it has four parts. In the first part of Article 15, um, this is where the right to science is outlined together with the right to participate in cultural life and author's rights. And then the other three parts of Article 15 deal with the kinds of obligations that states have to make sure that their citizens have access to uh, the right to science. Right now, I think we are beginning to move slowly from theory to practice. We have uncovered some of the normative stuff behind what is the right to science. And now the, the question is, how can we use it in practice? Can we make it justiciable as lawyers, say, for example? so that it can be used in a, in a court of law? Uh, could it be used, for example, in some of the, uh, the litigation that's going on about, you know, concerning climate change? And how in other ways can we turn from theory to practice? That's what the next generation of
2: PhD scholars such as Sebastian are working on right now. So one of the chapter authors, uh, Milan Vidot draws, among other things, on the notion of knowledge as, as enabling people's ability to aspire. And she presents arguments uh, just like the former special rapporteur on cultural rights Farida Shahid, who's now a special rapporteur on the right to education, that science is actually part of cultural life, since cultural life englobes all aspects of human existence, of which science is only one. And I think you've already touched a bit on this. Consequently, Bidog proposes that it's time to see the right to science as a more substantial right to participate in scientific life. You can always see this tension there in Article 27 between people as active agents freely participating and as passive beneficiaries sort of sharing in the benefits. Would you like to elaborate a bit more on how we are to understand this right to freely participate in the text of Article 27 and what are the implications from the point of view of scientists and the general public? Yes.
1: Well, um, the wording of, the, in, of Article 27 of the Universal Declaration is slightly different from the right to culture to the right to science, as you also pointed out. When it comes to cultural life, the wording says everyone has the right freely to participate in the cultural life. But when it comes to the right to science, the wording says everyone has the right to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. So that part about the right to science sounds slightly more passive. And it was discussed by the drafters, how would everybody sort of, no, no one needs major qualifications to, to participate in cultural life. But if you know nothing about science, how can you possibly participate? But it was also clear, and Sebastian already said this, I think that, that taking a part in scientific activities was seen as a, as a form of cultural life, that science was a part of cultural life. Hence, science is a cultural human right. But lately, um, there has been a major emphasis even more and more on participation. For example, in the general comment from 2020 that uh, talks about citizen science or do-it-yourself do- it science, and participation means two different things. It means participating, going, actually being part of, of as a citizen scientist, being part of science itself. For example, helping scientists find, uh, if, if, if scientists are interested in, in, uh, in butterflies, for example, um, the general public can participate in gathering samples and helping scientists. So that's, that's one part in which you, you can participate in, in citizen science. But the other part of it also has to do with decision-making in science policy as part of a democratic right. And this is something that Farida Shahid, the first UN special rapporteur in the the field of cultural rights, wrote about. The consensus today is pretty much that participation is just as strong when it comes to science as in culture. And we know also from the travaux, and again, Sebastian already mentioned this, that this is how the drafters looked at it. For Shahid and other citizen participation in science, policymaking is especially important as a possible potential way to prevent a dual-use science and technology, to create transparency about what is happening in the world of science so as to prevent, especially for vulnerable persons and groups, bad science, and also to make sure that ongoing scientific research relates to current societal problems. And this is then something that can clash with scientific freedom. Um, Scientific freedom that is mentioned specifically in Article 15.3 and is a major part of the right to science. Without scientific freedom, there will be no production of science, no production of knowledge from which the general public can um, learn and benefit. And the issue here is to what is the extent to which the public's participation in science actually means that they can tell scientists and scholars what to do their research on now i am i am uh, paid by the danish population my salary comes from public sources so does the danish population's right to science mean for example that they can tell me what to do my research on there's a tension here between on the one hand scientific freedom and on the other, this democratic mandate uh, of of the right to science, meaning participation in
2: science policymaking. So it's an awful lot in participation. Mm-hmm. There yeah. is. We had a brief mention of COVID earlier on, and I'd like to come back to that and talk about how the pandemic really is such a vivid and current example of how the right to science can be applied. And Sebastian, you considered COVID as a case study in the book. So would you tell us a bit more about what this human rights perspective can lend to such a global crisis and walk us through, the, as you put it, the good, the bad and the ugly and tell us what you found.
0: Right. Yeah. So much of the preparation of, of our book coincided in time with the, with the COVID-19 outbreak and, and the pandemic thus served as as an obvious and also obviously important uh, case study. The pandemic illustrates several or all of the aspects of the right to science. Uh, The subtitles you mentioned uh, are a reference to the fact that the right to science includes aspects aimed at minimizing harm, just as it includes aspects aimed at facilitating benefits. So the good here would refer to viewing COVID-relevant science and its applications, technologies, and so on as public goods. And expanding access to them is, of course, a moral imperative and a pragmatically wise choice, but the right to science adds to this list of reasons, a political and legal dimension and an obligation, which can be used to bolster efforts at expanding access to the benefits. As part of the human rights framework, the, the right to science moreover brings with it an inherent focus on equality and non-discrimination and the disparate effects of some COVID-19 restrictions and policies on vulnerable populations and the converse fact that most of the benefits of research and, and technologies accrue to you know already wealthy and privileged parts of the world that's what we refer to as the bad effects of pandemic science so we argued that the the focus on human rights law on equality and non-discrimination could be used to help counter these these bad effects now finally the the ugly refers to the phenomenon of dual use science which has been mentioned already so it's the, you know, the potential of the same science or technology to be used for, for either negative or, or positive ends, where an obvious example is, is nuclear physics, which can be used to generate a lot of energy or to making really powerful weapons. And now in the, in the context of COVID and the right to science, some of these dual use concerns might include, you know, the enhanced surveillance capacities developed to manage the pandemic as well as pandemic-related public health laws and their potential for, you know, use for purposes other than responding to the pandemic. And so this is a reminder that, that many scientific advances will include risks and downsides in addition to their benefits, and that a human rights approach requires paying attention to, to both.
2: Exactly. So we've already mentioned it, but the, the, of course, the pandemic and COVID also highlights the issues abounding with the fake news and alternative facts and the media and manipulative algorithms of social media and so on. And the physicist Ranga Yogeshwar writes in the book that the focus is no longer on content, but on attention. The guiding principles are not facts or social relevance, but reach, hit rates and aggressive clickbaiting. And as an aside, I I, I was quite interested to note how he sees this association between a culture of artificiality that's growing around us and and the rise in this word that we hear a lot these days, authentic. Um, But Yogeshwar also warns us about underestimating the effect of complexity and he highlights the disconnect in communication between scientists and uh, citizens, although presumably we share goals in the pursuit of science. So there are so many channels now available for us for the dissemination of information and we do tend to assume that open and free access, especially online, is a good thing. Would you tell us a bit more about the possible pitfalls and how we can better communicate around these complex issues and make a better connection perhaps between scientists and citizens?
1: Yes, The drafters behind those two major human rights instruments that we're talking about here, the Universal Declaration and the International Covenant, knew very well how important dissemination is. So, Article 15.2 in the International Covenant uh, on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights concerns dissemination. Because without dissemination, there is no right to science. If people don't understand, what is happening in the world of science? How can they have access doesn't mean anything. It has to be, science has to be, scientific knowledge has to be disseminated in such a way that people understand. But one of the things that interests me is uh, who should do this communication. Should it be science journalists or should it be scientists themselves, for example? And how, how what about citizen scientists? We all know that scientists are not always very good at this. Uh, And it is extremely difficult, as every one of us who has been in the media um, absolutely know, it's very, very difficult to explain something complicated in, say, 30 seconds to a wider audience. And you're always afraid as a scholar that you have to simplify and that also when, especially when it comes to the social media, that you'll be crucified. Most researchers don't want to be political. They want to argue in a neutral way or or attempt to argue in a neutral way. Um, the, The typical scientific argument is on the one hand, but then again on the other and there's absolutely no time for this in the media. So being in the media a lot means, means that you are forced to simplify to a certain extent. And this can very well end up looking to the public as if scientists take sides and are subjective. So the turn to science journalism is, is what scientists often do because we know that they are much better communicators. This is good and obvious in in many, many different ways. It makes a lot of sense. But there are a couple of issues that I want to raise that I think uh, Ranga Yogeshwar is also onto in his chapter. Um, As science journalists attempt to avoid jargon use and and increase straightforwardness when they, that's what they're good at in science communication, Uh, there is a tendency also that accuracy and important details may get lost in this process. And um, inaccurate arguments cannot be countered directly and on the spot in the way that the scientist him or herself could do it. Science journalists may also not necessarily prioritize or get across to the public the kind of excitement that's entailed in the creation of knowledge, which is really the core function of science. Some scholars are also asking if there's been a change in emphasis from the communication, the importance of communicating scientific knowledge to the public, to an emphasis more on the public's engagement with with science and technology, with citizen science and do-it-yourself science, and to providing entertainment and good experiences for the public so that, that we increase their interest in and their trust in science. And when too much attention is shifted away from communicating scholarly knowledge, then the pursuit of knowledge and truth, or the, 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 uh, the attempt to pursue the knowledge of and, knowledge and, and truth that the framers of the Universal Declaration and the International Covenant saw as the main objective of the right to science, then that tends to recede into the background. So I would argue that scientists need to be actively involved themselves in communicating to the public what exactly it is their science is about what its potential is why it is interesting and why science is important as a public good this doesn't mean at all that there is no longer any need for professional science journalists though because in order to honor the promise of article 152 and its importance for the right to science that's the one that talks about the importance of dissemination scientists would still very much benefit from being coached by professional science journalists Who can show them how to engage with the public in a respectful and non-paternalistic or elitist way. And I also think that at a time when the public becomes more and more involved in science policy decision making, that communication skills actually need to be included as a part of the educational curriculum in in STEM disciplines and the natural uh, sciences. And one last thing that I want to wanna say about why I think it's important that scientists themselves get involved is that becoming more visible and reaching a wider public, that is precisely what gives scientists uh, the chance to show the importance of their particular line of research. And then by so doing, it also increases their chances of securing funding, future funding. Speaking directly to the public as to why what I do is important increases those
2: chances of future funding. So this is also very important. These are very good points, and I love the way that you bring out the excitement of science. But Sebastian, perhaps you could add some more about the importance of diversity and inclusion in the right to science.
0: Sure, yeah. So the, the version of the right to science that we focus on in our book, so under international human rights law as opposed to, for example, regional or, or domestic law or, or a moral right, is meant by design to extend to every human equally, uh, no matter their background or location. So just simply by virtue of its inclusion in these documents, in this framework, the underlying human rights principles of equality, inclusion, participation and non-discrimination form part of the core of the right to science. So this means that the right to science cannot be fulfilled without diversity and inclusion in research. So samples need to be representative for the conclusions of studies to apply equally to everyone. And, and research teams need themselves to be diverse to help ensure that research takes place on needs and concerns that are specific to or more important uh, for certain groups. Otherwise, each of these groups and their members wouldn't equally enjoy the right to science. You know, another way to put it is that without, without these inputs, research trends will inevitably benefit some groups more than others in a way that's inconsistent with these fundamental human rights principles. But diversity and inclusion are also important for the right to science in other ways, uh, in really important ways. So the drafters uh, were convinced that the free exchange of people and information and equipment was essential for the ability of science to progress and so for it to deliver its benefits. And the wider and more inclusive this exchange is, you know, the better for scientific progress, the higher the rate of scientific progress. And so this intuition has has since been backed up by research. There's an excellent new book out um, this year, I think, called Horizons, the Global Origins of Modern Science, uh, in which the author James Poskett traces the development of modern science to cultural exchange across Asia, Africa, the Americas, and Europe sort of over millennia. And it makes a lot of sense that the interaction of different traditions, which um, have different ideas and theories and experiences, that the exchange of these would be mutually beneficial and would lead to better ideas and better, better met- methodologies. Also, several studies have found that scientific papers with authors that come from different backgrounds and have different ethnicities, or come from different countries have greater impact as measured by citation scores than papers with authors from a single uh, country or background or institution. Now, also diversity itself, also biological diversity itself, uh, can also be scientifically valuable. For example, genetic researchers have found that non-Caucasian samples contribute more associations to genome-wide association studies to, to data sets than, than do Caucasian samples at equivalent sample sizes. So not being inclusive, not having diverse participants can just slow down the rate of science as well.
2: Very interesting. Yeah. So perhaps a more general question. What do you think is required for science to be pursued for the common good?
1: Well, um, just, just to follow up on what Sebastian already said, uh, we're in the middle of a, a climate uh, crisis right now and certain other major problems. And so we need all the voices, all the experiences that are out there if we want to solve anything. So again, to the point of diversity, as a, as a public common good, public support is obviously very important. And one of the major problems for, in the world of science today is that a lot of the funding comes from private uh, funders. When it comes without any strings attached, it's wonderful because it adds to um, the world of science funding that they wouldn't, it wouldn't otherwise have had. But if it comes with strings attached, or if it gets fenced off by means of patents and intellectual property, then it is no longer available as a global common good. And this was one of the major problems with it during COVID, where the, the, some of those vaccines were far too expensive. And that's what happens when you when you throw intellectual property rights or something, you fence it off, it becomes a private thing. It excludes people. So um all of these reports, um, these reports written by the, um, the the relevant UN special rapporteurs all point to the fact that if we want to talk about science, pursuing science for the general common good, then public support funding needs to be increased. One added value for me of looking at science as a human right is that a, a part of scientific freedom, for example, is also its flip side, scientific responsibility, that Each scientist also has a moral responsibility to make accessible to everybody the science that he or she produces. So um, freedom is important uh, in itself, as we've talked about before, because without scientific freedom, there will be no production of knowledge at all for anybody to to benefit from. But it comes with a certain responsibility from a human rights uh, perspective. And then also, as we've mentioned before, the framers did see a difference between the production of science, which ought to be free in itself, because it was about pursuing scientific knowledge and the truth in and of itself. So there should be no limitations on that, hence scientific freedom, the importance of that, but that its products, whatever came out of it, Um, their limitations could apply. And the human rights system comes with limitations in and of itself, which is a good thing when we talk about uh, pursuing science for the common good.
2: Um, It's really good that your book is not just theoretical. You also take it from a very practical angle. And you've even developed four steps for policy. Would you briefly explain what your four steps test is, Sebastian, perhaps?
0: Yeah, sure. So the idea behind the the four-step test is to provide a framework for for people who want to work with the right to science in practice. So it's intended to help, let's say, advocates, attorneys, uh, NGO or civil service employees to identify when the right to science is applicable to a given issue in the first place, and then to help them focus on the questions they might need to ask when inquiring into the human rights compatibility of uh, policies impacting or involving science. Now, the the four steps uh, are a series of questions that proceed in a logical order to identify if the right to science is relevant to an issue, whether this issue promotes or restricts the enjoyment of the right to science. And if it does restrict the enjoyment, then whether this is legitimate under the sort of limitations framework that's built into the international covenant in which we find this right. So the first step involves assessing whether an issue falls under the scope of the right to science. So... We provide some guidance on on what's meant by benefit of scientific progress or by its applications, uh, as these terms are understood within the specific human rights context. And if so, the second step involves identifying whether one or more aspects of the issue in question involves a restriction as opposed to a facilitation of the right. So where it is a restriction, the second step asks whether it's best characterized as a retrogressive measure, a derogation or a limitation on the rights, which are you know, um, recognized categories in broader international human rights law. So whereas the first two, so that's uh, retrogressive measures and, and derogations are not allowed under the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Culture Rights, limitations can potentially be legitimate if they fulfill certain criteria. And and so carrying out this limitations analysis is the focus of the third step. If the the, the policy or issue in question clears all three, um, so all three previous steps, so that is it's within the scope of the right, it constitutes a, le- a limitation, and also the it's a legitimate limitation. Then the fourth step involves asking whether there are other policy options that, that also do this, and whether they there are some amongst the set that minimizes harm and and maximizes benefits. So this four-step tests is, is less of a decision algorithm uh, than it is a way to help ensure that some of the right questions are asked. And our hope with this chapter was that it could you know, help those that, that maybe see the right to science for the first time in their capacity or, or of, of engaging with, with science and human rights issues and could maybe help them ask some of these right questions.
2: For very practical steps. We're coming to the close of this episode, and I I really must say that the value of the right to science clearly resonates in your work and really makes us want to participate and to enjoy and to share more in it. We've covered a lot, and I really would still encourage people to read the book because it is fascinating and there's so much more in it. But to leave us with something, what point would you like to emphasize or what would you like to add about the right to science for our listeners?
1: Well, if, if I may start, I think I would point again to the importance of increased communication between the world of science and the public. Many of our most serious problems, as we've touched on before, just think of climate change, COVID, and so on, really involve science and technology. So we really need scientists on board to help us solve some of those problems but we also need all the expertise and the experience that's out there. And we need people to engage with science, non-scientists too. So how do we do this? How, how do we make that communication better, more respectful, so that people will listen and perhaps we can increase their trust in science? And one of the people that I think we can learn from and whose example I would like to, to mention here is, is actually Justice Elena Kagan on the United States Supreme Court. Justice Kagan has worked systematically toward enhancing the public's trust in the Supreme Court by writing opinions that explain her reasoning and that of her colleagues in such a way that it really becomes immediately understandable to everyone. It's especially in her dissenting opinions that she has uh, tried to promote a better understanding of how the judiciary works in practice. And her writing really sounds or looks like she's talking in plain terms and relatively short sentences that even a non-lawyer can grasp. She's clearly a gifted writer, Elena Kagan is, but perhaps just as importantly, she doesn't lecture or talk down to the public. Instead, what she does is that she addresses them as fellow citizens and stakeholders in American democracy. And this is crucial, I think, in a political environment, especially like the American right now that is divided to the point of being toxic and where the word elitist doesn't warrant respect, but instead seems to have entered the culture wars as a populist signal of criticism against those who think that maybe they know better than everyone else. So how to avoid that kind of hated elitism, that's the task we currently face as scholars, in my opinion, not just in the United States, but around the world, when we attempt to engage with the public and to honor Article 15.2 and its demand for scientific dissemination as a part of the right to science.
2: And Sebastian?
0: Yeah. So one very quick uh, brief point is that the our book is available open access, sort of in the spirit of the right to science. So if anybody's listening and would like to, to have access to it, it's as simple as a Google search. And so one one important point for me, sort of high level about the right to science is that it changes the, the baseline or the starting point uh, of discussions or analysis uh, concerning issues at the intersection of science and society. So Instead of beginning analyses from the point of view of the rights of intellectual property holders, for example, or or of companies or of the state, the focus in a human rights analysis is always on the individual. And, And that's quite a powerful reframing. So if you say we start from the idea that this is a benefit of science, then I, you, everybody has access to it both to, to sort of enjoy it, uh, but also to participate in it. That's the baseline. And then if there are good reasons for, for me not to have access uh, or for you not to participate in this particular aspect of science, then you have to come up with, you know, the onus is on, is on proving that, that this shouldn't be the case. But the baseline is that, that there should always be this access and that people should be able to participate. And that's quite different, I think, from the way we think about science uh, right now. Another interesting point is, um, which has not been widely discussed uh, either by us or by, by, by people in the field more broadly, is is what's meant uh, by science or what's the scope uh, of, of this term. So for the purposes of this human right. So if we approach this question now with through English colloquial understanding or usage of, of science in English right now, we might think, oh, that's, you know, it's the natural sciences and maybe it's some of the social sciences. But this turns out to be like quite a a recent usage. And it's also the the rights, uh, we have to remember, it's an international human rights law. So if you look at other languages, other uh, traditions, even if you look at what's known as the authentic language versions. So there are different versions of of the Universal Declaration and there's different versions of the International Covenant, which are each equally authentic. And if you look at those languages, that's French, Spanish. Russian, Arabic, and Chinese, the the terms they use there for science uh, have much broader or, you know, are broader at least than than the English sense. So there's an argument to be made that the right to science should be understood more broadly as a right to participate in intellectual life and to derive benefits from the results of intellectual life more broadly, which is, is something that I find very interesting. It's also something that, fits with the categorization of science as a a cultural um, human right. And then last but not least, working with the right to science is exciting because it's applicable to so many important areas of contemporary life, yet it has been so thoroughly neglected. So it's just really rare that people can contribute to areas of, of ethics or human rights that have been so underdeveloped. And this means that anyone that's listening right now has the potential to significantly impact and shape the promotion and the understanding of this right in ways that just wouldn't be possible uh, in more established areas of human rights law or, or in practical ethics. And so that's awesome and that's exhilarating, uh, at least to me. So if you're listening to this, uh, please join in uh, and, and help us, uh, please join in trying to develop this right.
2: Well, it is exhilarating and I think you really have broadened our perspectives. So hello, Porsterm, Sebastian Porstermann, thank you so much for joining us today. Our pleasure.
0: Thank you for having us in here.